0: I'm coming at the uh, from a perspective of writing quite a lot of stuff on um, <coughs> the morality of war and the morality of other forms of political violence such as terrorism and so on. Uh, I'm not very enthusiastic about uh, war. Uh, I merely think there's sort of logical space for the justification of war in some circumstances. Not very many. But peace, I think, has a crucial role in thinking about uh, just war theory, I think, point probably taking up later on. Well, the value of peace, as I say, has traditionally had a place in just war theory and, uh, of course, is paramount as a a value and an ideal uh, in pacifism. Since St. Augustine, who is often seen as a primary source of just war theory, is more explicit than most theorists about what's meant by the idea of peace, I want to explore his account to see what lessons it has for us today. I think people talk about peace an awful lot without uh, often getting very precise about what they mean and I hope to make a contribution to that. Augustine gives peace a pivotal role in his thinking about both war and politics, but his complex legacy needs unpacking. I will argue that he operates with three conceptions of peace connected under the concept of order, and that only one of these can be helpful in developing an ideal of peace that could feasibly help with discussions such as the morality of war. Augustine's emphasis upon the role of peace goes so far as to affirm the ubiquitous nature of the devotion to peace, He sees the desire for peace as an essential ingredient of human nature, much like the desire for enjoyment. In his discussions of war, Augustine argues that even war-making is essentially oriented to peace. It's not only that rulers and warriors ought to be concerned with peace, but that they inevitably are. This is what he says in The City of God. Indeed, even when men choose war, their only wish is for victory, which shows that their desire in in fighting is for peace with glory. For what is victory but the conquest of the opposing side, and when this is achieved there will be peace. Even wars, then, are waged with peace as their object, even when they are waged by those who are concerned to exercise their warlike prowess, either in command or in the actual fighting. Hence it is an established fact that peace is the desired end of war. For every man is in quest of peace, even in waging war, whereas no one is in quest of war when making peace. Unquote. An important insight here is that war is primarily instrumental, so that even the most bloodthirsty warriors or rulers resort to war to further some other broadly political purposes. This is an insight anticipated by Aristotle, who says, quote, no one desires to be at war for the sake of being at war, nor deliberately takes steps to cause a war. A man would be thought an utterly bloodthirsty character if he declared war on a friendly state for uh, for the sake of causing battles and massacres. Unquote. But the instrumentality thesis is distinct from the ubiquity of peacekeeping thesis, which, or peace-seeking thesis, which Augustine puts forward. It's only by adopting an extremely attenuated conception of peace that Augustine achieves the ubiquity conclusion. This, I call a, a very thin understanding of peace, is basically that of whatever order is established by the cessation or absence of war, and that has the virtue of establishing some sort of universality in the desire for peace, and it also has the merit of implying a reasonably neutral, empirical way of determining when peace has occurred, and giving us, therefore, a palpable goal to seek. But it has major disadvantages, the principal one being that it fails to make for an ideal of peace that is sufficiently benign. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ did not mean to reassure warmongers like Genghis Khan when he said, blessed are the peacemakers and the enslaved survivors of a brutal conquest of arms may be able to gain some consolation from the thought that the worst is over, but they can hardly rejoice in the achievement of peace. The remark of Tacitus, they make a wilderness and call it peace, draws scornful attention to the deficiencies attendant upon uses of the very thin notion of peace. Augustine's discussion of peace is complex and full of tensions, and it has targets beyond the issue of war. As with much of his examination of social and political ethics, he shows ambivalence, even impatience, with the values and morality of the earthly city and exhibits an inclination to put a gulf between the goods of the political order and the spiritual goods that can only be enjoyed in fellowship with God. Often the crucial fact about life here below for him consists in whether it is sufficiently ordered to allow the Christian to get on with his or her spiritual quest in relative safety and freedom. Hence the importance of any sort of peace and the close link of peace with order. In his discussion of the violent robber, who is a possible counterexample to his thesis that everyone seeks peace, Augustine points out that such a person is anxious to establish peace amongst his criminal associates and in his own domestic circumstances. In the latter case, quote, he scolds and punishes, and if need be, he employs savage measures to impose on his household a peace which he feels cannot exist unless all the other elements in the same domestic society are subject to one head, and this head in his own home is himself. The brutality and depression by which this piece is established, and presumably maintained, does not count against it being a piece for Augustine in this mood, that is, the thin conception of peace at work. Yet Augustine recognises that some versions of peace are more valuable than others, And he also acknowledges the temptation to employ a richer concept of peace in place of the thin one. So he says, quote, For no creature's perversion is so contrary to nature as to destroy the very last vestiges of its nature. It comes to this then. A man who has learnt to prefer right to wrong and the rightly ordered to the perverted sees that the peace of the unjust compared with the peace of the just is not worthy even of the name of peace. Yet even what is perverted must a necessity be in or derived from or associated with, that is in a sense at peace with, some part of the order of things among which it has its being, or of which it consists, otherwise it would not exist at all. Here Augustine envisages in the first part of the quotation the possibility of a richer notion of peace, the peace of the just, but it then uh, twists around and insists that the iniquitous imposition of order will still count as a sort of peace. Indeed. So strong is the metaphysical link between existence, order and peace in the latter part of that passage and others surrounding the quotation that it would seem to commit Augustine to the view that war itself is a sort of peace since it exists. Here the understanding of peace is at its absolute thinnest and most metaphysical, and from the point of view of any study of war, at its least useful. Let us set this bare metaphysical conception aside and take the thin conception more practically. To be that which treats peace as the state of societies that are not at war. This connects more sensibly with political realities and still provides a contrast with richer conceptions of peace, such as the peace of the just, since nations may coexist without violent hostilities between them, even where the settlement or arrangement that's brought this condition about is far from just. The thin conception is descriptively adequate for characterising empirical realities and some human goals, But as we saw in discussing discussing Augustine's ubiquity thesis, it's seriously deficient if we're interested in an ideal of peace as something to be striven for in a context of international dispute and diplomacy. No doubt the absence of war brought about by the, the success of a vicious unjust conquest has something to be said for it, namely the carnage has stopped. But this seems too minimal to count as the object of peacemaking or explain the attraction of an ideal of peace. What then of the rich conception? My contention is that rich that rich conceptions of peace tend to the opposite fault of being too morally loaded. To see this, let us first look at a very rich account of peace to be found in Augustine. The most striking contrast with the thin conception is the rich conception of peace employed by Augustine when he discusses the life and inner dynamic of the heavenly city. We see then, he says, that the supreme good of the city of God is everlasting and perfect peace, which is not the peace through which men pass in their mortality and their journey from birth to death, but that peace in which they remain in their immortal state, experiencing no adversity at all. This form of peace is, he says, quote, the perfectly ordered and completely harmonious fellowship in the enjoyment of God and of each other in God. But Augustine recognises that this peace, which involves ultimate justice, may be too rich and remote a concept for discussion of earthly affairs, so to avoid confusion he decides to use eternal life, instead to characterize this fulfillment. Though he does not always adhere to this linguistic preference, his admission of the remoteness of a heavenly from an earthly peace suggests the need for a medium conception of peace that has more utility than rich or thin conceptions. This medium conception should incorporate something of the value that Augustine saw in the peace of the just, by contrast with the peace of brutal conquest, but stops short of wholly absorbing peace into justice. So the medium conception of peace, the path to a more practically relevant construal of peace, the medium conception, may however be built from Augustine's explicit definitions of peace. One definition he offers in Book uh, 19 is, quote, peace is ordered harmony and the basis of this order is the observance of two rules, first to do no harm to anyone and secondly to help everyone wherever possible. Augustine then elaborates on his conception of peace as ordered harmony in relation to earthly peace by saying, So also the earthly city whose life is not based on faith aims at an earthly peace, and it limits the harmonious agreement of citizens concerning the giving and obeying of orders to the establishment of a kind of compromise between human wills about the things relevant to mortal life. The idea of compromise associated here with peace as ordered harmony suggests a situation in which at least some of the interests of the parties involved have been honoured. This comports with Augustine's characterisation of the way in which just men rule in the household. They do not give orders because of a lust for domination, but from a dutiful concern for the interest of others, not with pride in taking precedence over others, but with compassion in taking care of others." Insofar as Augustine recommends that households be run in the manner of the city, it appears that the ruler of a city should in some analogous way be attentive to the interests of citizens. Moreover, this seems to be an in- integral part of peace as ordered harmony, and it involves the compromise between human wills, avoiding lust for domination, that sets it apart from the thin conception of peace embodied in the brutal robber, patofaimilios, mentioned earlier, or from the condition of a crushed and humiliated but no longer resisting people lauded over by a triumphant conqueror. The medium interpretation of peace extracted from Augustine's definition is reinforced by the consideration of another definition he gives later when he says, the peace of all things is the tranquility of order. The reference to tranquility points to states of mind that accompany the order that is peace, and these states of mind seem plainly inconsistent with any merely dominational model of peace. A medium conception of peace developed from these Augustinian suggestions requires something more robust than a mere cessation of war or violent conflict, though not something so robust as to absorb the ideal of peace into that of justice or liberty. We need to leave room for the phrase, just peace, to be more than a pleonasm, and for a legitimate space between unjust peace and not a peace at all. Here Hobbes, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, may be a useful guide, because he makes a parallel point about war when he says, quote, For war consisteth not in battle only, or in the act of fighting, but but in a tract of time wherein the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known, And therefore the notion of time is to be considered in the nature of war, as it is in the nature of weather. For as the nature of foul weather lieth not in a shower or two of rain, but in an inclination thereto of many days together, so the nature of war consisteth not in actual fighting, but in the known disposition thereto. During all time there is no assurance to the contrary. All other time is peace, he says. A peace must have something in it that at least quiets the dispositions to violence, hostility and aggression that are typical of war, even if it doesn't eliminate them entirely. The defeated or disadvantaged parties to the peace may have legitimate grievances remaining, but in a genuine peace there is a settling of dispositions into a certain tranquility so that the recurrence of violent conflict is not imminent and the maintenance of order does not require inordinate violence. The ordered harmony of earthly peace demands some degree of coordination of interests amongst previously warring or violently disposed hostile parties that, like all compromise, involves losses and gains. Yet, by offering a serious measure of respect to the interests of those who are defeated or disadvantaged by the cessation of hostilities, it helps ensure the endurance of calm rather than foul weather, as Hobbes puts it. Some conditions like this seem to be in Marshall Foch's mind when he said with deliberate hyperbole of the Peace of Vers- Versailles, this is not a peace treaty, it is an armistice for twenty years. In terms of an ideal, then, the pursuit of peace can be distinguished from the goal of the mere cessation of hostilities on any terms. There has to be something involved in the cessation or absence that has an inherent stability about it to be enjoyed. It may not be what either party to the conflict originally sought when they took up arms, but it cannot be so totally crushing as to keep alive and potent the dispositions to war that preceded it. The victory-defeat itself may have been crushing in the sense of overwhelming and devastating, but the settlement must offer something hopeful to the conquered if it is to count as peace. Again, it must be stressed that what it offers may be less than full justice. If peace is understood in this way, what attractions would it have as an ideal? Well, one attraction is that a world or geographical region that is at peace is a world or region that lacks various conspicuous evils associated with warfare and similar forms of violence. These are often calamitous evils, even though they're not the only evils in the world. Moreover, they are evils that human beings are prone to inflict on one another, so that the likelihood of their occurrence is alarmingly high. And yet they are within human control, and in principle at least subject to human prevention. In light of this, an ideal of peace should stimulate efforts to maintain peace in the face of threats to it, and to re-establish peace when it has been destroyed by war. Central to the pursuit of such an ideal of peace is an ability to negotiate some kind of, quote, compromise between human wills about things relevant to mortal life, in Augustine's words. It was such an ability that Augustine praised, a year before he died, in what was his last letter on the subject of peace, written to the soldier Darius, who had just concluded peace negotiations with the Vandals. After praising warriors who bravely defended the state and its interest, uh, thereby achieving peace by force of arms, Augustine says to Darius, But it is a higher glory still to slay war with the word than, than men with the sword, and to procure or maintain peace by peace, not by war. For those who fight if they are good men, doubtless seek peace. Nevertheless, it is through blood. Your mission, however, is to prevent the shedding of blood. Yours, therefore, is the privilege of averting that calamity which others are under the necessity of producing. End of quote. This comment exhibits the way in which Augustine thinks of the ideal of peace as showing the superiority of peaceful means of settling political disputes over violent solutions, this being in line with the last resort condition uh, of the just war theory. He thereby places the ideal of peace peace, as a governing, indeed inhibiting factor, in the thinking that considers the resort to war for solving political problems. As such, it figures as a significant background to the conditions of the Yusad ad bellum, That's part of the just war theory that uh, is concerned with the going to war in the first place. Augustine's comment also suggests two other things that I'll only be able to mention and not follow up. The first is the role of the ideal of peace in guiding our attitudes to the ending of violent conflicts, even on the part of the justified side, if indeed there is one. Many wars between two unjustified sides. And the second is the relation of the ideal of peace at, uh, understood in this medium way to the outlook of pacifism but at that point I'll have to stop thank you
1: there's uh, <clears throat> well, it's only um, about 29 or 30 centuries that I have to cover and I think it's 10 minutes is that right? Ten and, minutes and, yeah, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> I'm just going to set this here so we go on here we go Uh, and a few languages. So I've just actually whittled this down because I realized that we have a number of speakers and and, um, a limited amount of time. I'm going to make some major points. Um, This is a a practical conference and I've spent um, years in, in what we call interfaith dialogue uh, trading pleasantries and sharing inspiring anecdotes and delivering magnanimous papers all with virtually no effect or any practical uh, on any practical state of affairs um, I personally know of no one's life who was saved through these conferences or even one round of ammunition that was not fired because of them uh, on the contrary as we dined in five-star hotels and this was in the 90s in Rome and Berlin Paris the world seethed and conflict at least in some areas actually worsened uh, I have little doubt that if we had given the hundreds of thousands of pounds spent on, on these affairs directly to some of the impoverished people in the conflict zones uh, it would have served greater purposes than the expensive conferences uh, to make certain governments, organizations religious groups or ethnic groups or sometimes even individual sponsors um, look good and facilitate uh, the exchange of platitudes. Now with that said I'm I'm going to try not to continue in that tradition um, and offer um, something else. So, uh, the question with all of this is: is what went wrong, or what could have been done better? Um, why are conflicts are perpetuating? Um, despite the the biblical aspect to the first part of my presentation, I have no intention to issue heartwarming homiletics. Uh, it's also not going to be an academic discourse, the the regnant style in these revered halls. Uh, there's a time and a place, I think, for meticulous analysis, examining the etymology of the term shalom, which it looks like I'm about to do, but I'm not, Um, the semantic range, historical development, etc. But I feel this is not what this conference is for. As a matter of fact, uh, alongside with my skepticism of the broad effectiveness of interfaith efforts as they have been conducted or often are conducted, uh, I similarly question the utility of the academic model as it has been generally practiced in providing comprehensive um, solutions. And of course, we heard, it's not just me, I think that's saying that, but we heard that from Scylla last night, said that we don't seem to have come up with a comprehensive strategy and, and uh, why is that and what would that strategy perhaps be? So I don't wish to say there are no good models, um, but I, I wonder if we judged um, academic discourse in the, the piece of business and we compared it to other models where results are expected. For instance, a business school, um, if most of the graduates uh, from Saeed uh, opened businesses that then went bankrupt, uh, we'd, we'd have to scratch our head a little bit. Um, now, I'm, I'm not holding, of course, academic discourse responsible for world conflict, but I wonder if we can't uh, look for uh, models which actually have some bearing on uh, results as well. Um, now, what does this all have to do with uh, Shalom and Russian 19th century? Well, here we go. Um, I would argue that the ideal of Shalom or peace in biblical sources um, is a comprehensive ideal that already appears in, in the biblical text, the Hebrew scriptures. It's inherent in uh, the word for peace, Shalom, which derives from the Hebrew word Shalem, meaning wholeness or completeness. Shleimut um, in Hebrew means uh, perfection. And, and if you look at the verses where uh, this term appears in the Bible, it's, it's often associated with other terms. So I'll just quote a couple because I know time is short. Um, it, this is from uh, Zachariah, uh, Zachariah, who says, Dabru uh, Emet, speak truth, Emet, and then Emet umishkat shalom. Shiftu Bashar Ahem. truth and judgment of peace judge in your gate. So we have an association with uh, truth, primarily truth actually, and then peace. As being a a, a corollary, perhaps, or um, of truth, Uh, one more verse, and we can pick many of these, but I'll I'll, I'll just uh, do a couple. Torah Temet, the law or the Torah of truth, and then it says, "Beshalomu Mishor Halachiti," with peace. And uh, righteousness or or straightness, literally, Um, he went with me, meaning God, he walked with me. Um, So um, there's the notion of, one, truth, two, the notion of uprightness, um, and three, the notion of peace. And fourth, in this one verse, great verse, this is... um, and rabbim Heshiv Meavon and he did turn many away from iniquity. So engagement with people, in other words, it's not good enough just to have these values yourself, but then you have to go out and um, share these ideals. What was what the rabbis called tikkun olam, or mending the world. Um, so the ideal isn't to go on a mountaintop and uh, to find this inner peace, but actually to do something in in the world with it. Which is, I would argue, that it, it seems like the, what we all have in mind. Um, being active in, in, in this, these ventures. Uh, sit and do no wrong is not, uh, therefore, um, good enough. So it seems like this the, this term refers to in both an inner state of mind and an external state of affairs. It has to do with truth, which is largely an inner value, cognitive value, I would argue, um, and it's a question of um, justice. And um, was it this morning in John, Gal- John Galton's lecture that someone said, what is this all about Why don't we talk about justice? There's always that association made. And and it seems like it's almost like a a stool with three legs. You can't do without it. People want truth. They want their story told uh, or their narrative to be understood. They also want justice. I don't want to even try to define that right now, but it seems to be some correspondence in this world, some rectification, um, some coming to terms with what has been done. So this internal consciousness, the, the truth, something, in this world about justice, and it seems like, as, as this woman's question this morning seems to imply, that if you do those things, actually tr- uh, peace will probably follow, um, because that, that, um, that is, is what we want. Of course, there are issues like borders and water and practical issues that have to be dealt with, even if you have truth and justice, but somehow um, those, those two would go a long way. Uh, as this concept developed in the biblical canon, these intrinsic or holistic aspects of uh, shalom or, or peace gained ascendancy over what I would describe as minimalist notions of a mere absence of violence or cessation of quarrel combinating in messianic visions in which both inner and outer worlds merge in a universal harmony and mutual understanding. Um, and of course, you know, these texts, uh, from the Bible, the, the, the vicious animals lying down with the, the calm animals, uh, lions and lambs. And this seems to be this notion of the world, both in the external sense, but also in an internal sense will just, um, effuse, um, these, the value of peace. Um, In these senses, Shalom transcends uh, physical and social dimensions and becomes a moral value, a psychological disposition, a cosmic and divine attribute. And ultimately, in in the Talmud, it becomes the name of God. So God is referred to as Shalom. God has lots of names. Um, Not so different, I think, from the the Vedas. But um, this is one of the names that the rabbis give to, to God. Okay, where does this take us? So we have uh, already in the Bible a notion of um, justice, truth, physical and spiritual, and now we're going to skip several centuries further. I should mention, by the way, that that the Bible is not completely pacifist. Um, Even people who want to pursue peace end up preparing for war just in case. The classic case is probably um, Jacob and Esau. Esau, uh, Jacob doesn't want to go to war with his vicious brother, and uh, he divides his camps, and this is called Mahanai, in two camps and one camp is put on one side and um, he says if Esau shall come to the one camp and smite it um, then the camp which is left shall escape and he has in mind two things he tries to make peace by bringing gifts but he also prepares for war and he also prepares for, for what would happen if there is a war and his side is devastated at least the remnants will survive it's a practicality but certainly the emphasis is always you try to appease you try to make um, uh, offer gifts or do anything you can to avoid going uh, to war you're also practical and you don't leave your side exposed and um, you prepare for it just in case Right. jumping ahead, now we're in the 19th century in Russia Um, and um, the challenge in in Russia was to overthrow a repressive regime Um, now you could call this national liberation or you could call it a war, now some people might um, object to the, the term war but I've come here to shake things up so I would argue in a sense there's there's not that much difference Um, if if one Serb kills Franz Ferdinand it's war Um, but on the other hand if the Tsar fires on hundreds of peaceful demonstrators in in a square in St. Petersburg and sends thousands of people to rot in labor camps and and die in Siberia or condemns millions of peasants to lives of servitude it's hard to call that peace Um, at the very least I would call it a civil war, a, a kind of perpetual Civil War, at least uh, starting from 1825 in the Decemberist Revolution, that went on and culminated in. 1917 revolution which again if you want you can you can look at that as the the outcome of a civil war. Um, in any case many Russians developed uh, revolutionary positions and, and you are all familiar with these so I won't rehearse them. The czarist regime is rotten to the core you must overthrow it you have to kill them even the remnants such as Nicholas and his family and his little girls uh, you start afresh you change the entire social system that's the answer that was the answer for many Russians you change the social 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 structure, economic system, political framework. That was their solution. Sounds eminently reasonable. Um, and I see we just have a few minutes left, yeah? Um, okay, um, and so we witnessed the appearance of revolutionary nihilists, their beady eyes, transfixed behind wired glasses, students with scraggly hair in gothic garb, planting bombs in government offices, courts, police stations, universities, and under the Tsar's own carriage. Of course, the Tsar is assassinated in 1881. Uh, These nihilists that begin to appear in the 1850s, soon followed by Marxists and dialectical materialists of the late 19th century, finally the Bolsheviks, and finally they succeed. It worked. So this seems to be the answer violent overthrow you would change you change all the external structures and if you're a materialist you realize that you have to change it it's the externals that count um, if you can because material things determine the reality social economic uh, factors determine if you're a Marxist determine uh, reality. Uh, it worked well did it. Um, and I think I could conclude on these points, and we can all ponder these things did it work There were actually Russians who didn 't think this was the uh, full solution, um, and they argued that even if you could get a successful overthrow of the Tsarist government and they thought eventually you would that if you didn 't do it in a certain way, it would not succeed and this is where we mesh back into Shalom. It, for them it had to be a complete, a comprehensive, a holistic solution. Some of the Russian revolutionaries, such as Herzen, uh even argued that if it wasn't going to be a holistic uh, solution, we'd have to think twice about whether we wanted to overthrow the regime because it could do more damage than good. Um, now, why am I saying all this? Because I think that there's a, an emphasis these days in the discourse of peace um, for for piecemeal solutions, or what we call in North America, band aid solutions. So there's, there's a, an emphasis, high level diplomats uh, making top level agreements. Versailles was mentioned, I think, just right now. Great agreement. You've got the agreement, you sign it, you get the t shirt, and you've got peace. Perfect that 's how documents work now you might say well it 's patently ridiculous, but I have spoken to high level diplomats can 't name because I think i 'm being recorded right now let 's just say people who are in charge of um, Middle East negotiations, etc, Northern Ireland as well, no names mentioned and and their perspective is purely top level, uh, top level down. If you sign the agreement all the rest will follow. Con- convinced of that. Um, and the world rewards people for that. People get Nobel Prizes for signing agreements. Not for producing harmonious societies but for signing pieces of paper. As a matter of fact a recent uh, well-known American government uh, official has recently received the Nobel Peace Prize even before he was able to sign agreements. That's how important it is to have people who seem to be able to sign these agreements. Well, I think both the Bible and the, the, the Russians might argue with that. And here is what happens. And um, Versailles has already been mentioned, so I won't go through that. Let's look at the Russian example. You have success. You have the revolution. Um, and here's the transition. Is it, uh, two minutes more, and then we're gone. Um, this is the transition. Tsarist Russia, you have one supreme autocratic ruler, small administration, elite, ministers and confidants massive corrupt bureaucracy, this is all 19th century czarist Russia, secret pre- police, ochrana, censorship of books, no absolute right to free speech or assembly uh, if you do uh, exercise those you could be subject to exile, a small social group called uh, Dvarjanskvar, the gentry who controlled most of the wealth um, made up uh, about 3 or 4% of the population probably less than that actually um, 95, 90 six percent of the population were serfs, um, and uh, they had almost nothing. And now let's look at the Soviet, the successful revolution, everything has changed, right? One supreme autocratic ruler in Tsar's times, in Russia, nothing of the sort, you have Lenin, you have Stalin. <laughs> Uh, starting, Okay, uh, supreme administrative, a small administrative elite in Czarist times, in Russia you have this thing called the Politburo, who kind of organizes in the Kremlin, actually more concentration of political power there than you had in Tsarist times, where you had actually Zemstva and local authorities as well competing with the Tsar. Um, massive corrupt bu- bureaucracy, well if any of you have been to Soviet Russia, you know that that certainly doesn't exist. Um, but I would say it's actually part of the, the system. Um, and a uh, secret police... In Russia, much more effective than in Tsarist times. The, the Treti Anokrana in Tsarist times were known for their bumbling, their inefficiencies. Um, the KGB and other organizations in Russia were much more effective. Uh, censorship of books, well, in Tsarist Russia, lots of writings did get through. In Soviet times, almost complete control uh, of that. Uh, free speech and being exiled. You know in Tsarist Russia, if you got exiled, sometimes you just got sent to the provinces. Uh, in the Soviet Union of course you got sent to a gulag um, finishing off small social group in we said 3 or 4% of the population it controlled things in Russia you actually had one group called, well, one organization called the government the Soviet state which actually owned everything far worse than in czarist times um, and uh, I won't even comment, because I still want to be able to go back and forth to Russia, so I won't comment on Russia from 1989 on... However, if you, if you would do an economic analysis of the oligarchs and see the concentration of capital for a very, very small number of people, and also, although it's not so much a censored press, if you look at the effects of television, which is government-controlled in Russia today, I would argue that this is certainly a case for saying that that's far uh, more... Um, Um, uh, noxious than anything in in, uh, Tsarist or even Soviet times. And the way you can see that is the approval ratings of the government. In Tsarist times there was opposition to the government. In Soviet times there were dissidents. Now the approval rating of the government is sky high. uh, Because everybody watches TV and it's all they they, they got the message straight from the government. Everything is good. Everything is okay. Uh, So I I think I'll end there um, arguing for um, maybe a reassessment of what we really want when we're asking for peace. Thank you. Okay, uh,
2: okay we hear next from Therese Binder, the students uh, here at the Faculty of Theology. And I'll let you explain, rather than my reading your title, what it is you'll be talking about.
3: Okay, so this is a... Um this. It does, is it, on, does this work? Yes. It's okay. on. It's All right. Just, uh, in. Okay. So this is a, a peace-building conference, and I uh, study just war theory. So I uh, have the bit, uh, a bit of a provocative question, which is: Are just war theorists the more realistic scholars of peace? And. Um, I don't want to relate uh, realism and pacifism and just war theory to each other but I'm going to relate uh, four terms to each other which is peace studies peace-building, war studies, and just war thinking. So ideally, the study of peace should lead to peace-building. A positive and substantial definition of peace opens up the space for concrete efforts to build, support, and maintain just and peaceful institutions. It can foster a peaceful mindset including the virtues of prudence, clemency, even-handedness. Most importantly, such a definition entails concrete political, legislative action geared towards tangible results. Now political discourse and practice may take on a deliberative forum that is peaceful in procedural terms. On a global scale, the idea of a universal state or the UN forum might even provide an overarching authority with executive powers to some extent. However, procedure cannot be divorced from value content and procedure cannot be taken for granted. Um, Moreover, there are fundamental incompatibilities amongst different interests and life worlds. Thus, political action remains conflictual and potentially antagonistic. Um, Chantal Mouffe's so-called agonistic perspective of politics here might be be helpful. Whether that's desirable or not, it distinguishes the political as a sphere of hostility and antagonism from politics as a set of practices, discourses and institutions seeking to establish order in the form of compromise between adversaries. The possibility of violence when the political surfaces remains a constant danger. Politics may fail and lead to pure antagonism between enemies, which is the political. At the same time, the use of force may be a necessary instrument to establish and maintain order and peace. It then is the continuation of politics by other means. But then, if you talk about the use of force, the just war theorists would say, we are back at just war thinking, whilst building peace. So clearly peace building and just war theory have a lot in common. Whether a presumption against force or a presumption against injustice, both certainly should have in common a presumption against war. Both are also geared towards practice. They share the assumption that action is not per se peaceful but relates to the telos of peace. Even if stable peaceful societies are built, continuing political activity contains the possibility to revert to the political, a danger uh, that both disciplines are aware of. So since both are interested in maintaining order, they need to relate their actions to violence and justifying justifying its use or non-use and their response to others using violence. Therefore, I think, peace-building must be just war-thinking. Now moving back up and forth. Um, So as we've heard from Tony, uh, the the idea that war is geared towards peace is pretty much uh, established in tradition. Um, but equating just war thinking with peace building informed by a substantial positive definition of peace, in my mind, implies favouring a particular kind of just war thinking. So therefore, I think um, for just war theorists to be in the same boat with peaceniks, I think we require three basic assumptions, which is A, a presumption against violence, ethical freedom and historical contingency. To the first point, the presumption against violence, I think just war theory must operate on presumption against violence because violence is the key marker of the absence of peace. If just war theory is merely based on a presumption against injustice, the struggle for injustice through war can become perpetual. And that many warriors against the terror have affinities with Trotskyism is maybe not a surprise. So a presumption against violence can mean accepting more injustice than a presumption against injustice would allow for. However, that doesn't mean inactivity or what is sometimes called isolationism. Once large-scale injustice is manifested in large-scale violence, so violence is necessary but not sufficient to define egregious injustice, just war thinking leaves the ground of initial presumptions and begins to reason about the proportionality of response. The question of presumption is therefore not about preferring values supposedly incommensurable, like justice or or peace, which we've seen aren't incommensurable, but about an initial squeamishness about others and one's own violence. Um, I'll come back to this below. Uh, And so on a more anthropological level I think the presumption against violence corresponds to human peaceability and rather than to a sort of subliminal war of all against all. As Hobbes suggests, uh, which would be inherent in a kind of embrace of the political as, uh, like as, a, as a sort of an uh, ethical imperative. The second point uh, about the freedom of ethical response. So, a set of just war criteria or guiding principles must be applied to a particular situation with a genuine possibility to say yes or no to military action. That means it must have freedom as the basis of ethics. This view squares with just war pacifism, which aims to show that every war is unjust through applying just war criteria. The outcome of reflection here is basically predetermined. But it also takes just war thinking out of the hands of those inclined to say yes to everything that the government says, even under the cloak of necessity. Necessity here is inevitability or some sort of ex post facto necessity, which you. Uh, kind of project back into time, or just simply out of political opportunism. So this, um, uh, this implies a rejection of the necessity that finally uh, is at work when you say um, uh, certain planes kill so and so many people, or certain kinds of bombs uh, are thrown, and it's this, we cannot do anything about this. Um, so sort of the necessity of the war machine as such. Um, So I reject that. Um, The third point is uh, a sense of of historical contingency. Um, Just war theorists that try to show why history as it happened was right and necessarily right to happen tend to practice apologetics rather than practical ethical reflection. For example, constantly recurring uh, to the constellation of World War II and comparing every evil dictator to Hitler defies historical contingency and fails to take into account the ethical situation that one encounters anew. Uh, In this way, the response in a situation is genuinely guided by principles of justice rather than historical blueprints. It is also a protective shield against some kind of emotional blackmail, along the lines, we made war against this body in the past. If you disagree with this new war against a new body, you, you align yourself with the old one. Um, so these three assumptions I find most likely to relate to a just war theory that aligns itself with peace studies. So concrete criteria obviously would have to be uh, kind of developed um, in a different paper, obviously. So but if peace building is just war thinking, then why should we retain just war thinking in its own right? So I would argue that peace building as just war thinking can give and retain a substantial and positive definition of war. Um, So war isn't desirable, but such a, a definition may be desirable, considering that peace studies aim to give a wholesome account of peace. So it seems to me that only if we have a useful definition of war, then it can be limited, confined, and actually come to an end. Um, For this substantial definition of war, uh, draws on the descriptive and phenomenological aspect of war studies, which would be the last of our four terms. So the psychological and military historical and social aspects, and uh, continuing research on the past and present wars allow the theorists to fully acknowledge the experience of war, maiming, destroying, displacing, killing, violence and blood and blood on all sides involved. So in such a way, the just war theorist may even recognize that his own ethical frame of mind always remains alienated from and can even cynically cynically disregard the reality on the ground. Moreover, uh, the experience of war is recognized to have some objectivity which is vital, especially in legal discourses. so one can even locate the definition of war in uh, sort of a framework of family resemblances, which is what David Roden has done, so that you have certain key uh, characteristics that help to establish what it actually is or could be. Um, so from this point of view, you can identify borderline cases, but you also don't have to a priori reject the term war because it may be subject to, as Oliver O'Donovan said, reification and therefore deconstruction. So war is the occasion most likely to turn into an antagonistic barbarism and senseless slaughter. So from this potential is of war or from this return to the political uh, springs a crucial ethical ought, which is the demand of proportionality. Only if I know how uh, how ugly and awful it's going to be what I do, I can say what is, what is actually proportionate in this situation. So um, this last consideration, uh, an honest account of war, uh, relates back to the initial, what I said, squeamishness about others and one's own violence. Tony Cody, who is, is next to me, has pointed out that the term political violence is much political violence is much more appropriate than a sort of legitimate definition of of uh, of violence, uh, like the use of force or something, um, uh, because the tendency to talk of the state as using force and of terrorists or revolutionaries as using violence embodies an attempt to bring initial opprobrium upon the non-state actors via the negative connotations of violence and to give an a priori mantle, mantle of respectability to the state actors. So this goes hand in hand with a purely neutral and instrumental view of military force that aims to cloak its own violence in basically surgical sterility. But if just war theorists remain firmly rooted in the insights made available through a close study of war and the experience of war and case studies and all that we've heard today, then there's less danger of falling into a web of legitimate terminology and euphemism, which is also known as propaganda. Um, So I think an example of sort of a denial of war can be seen in Germany right now. Uh, We are still not in Afghanistan, we are the biggest, uh, the third largest um, group of troops in in Afghanistan, and we're still not officially in a war, Um, and that's in the year 2010. Uh, And that just doesn't have propagandistic motives. Um, It's got a legal impact, for example, the life insurance of soldiers. If it so happens that you die in a war, uh, then the life insurance doesn't, pay and then the government would be implicated Um, and even worse up until 2009 soldiers were charged and tried for manslaughter under domestic criminal law um, even though they were clearly in a war so it should have been under a different kind of jurisdiction possibly international jurisdiction Um, So to summarize I. I argue that peace building should be just war thinking. Just war thinking must be guided by the study and implications of peace, but derive its terminology for ethical, practical reflection from war studies. The ought of just war theory is peace. There is a substantial and honest definition of war. So studying peace and building peace without the concepts of war, I think, and violence is prone to become delusional. it may cease to recognize the disproportionate suffering that just and unjust alike can inflict on others. And although not embracing it, just war theory must must be aware of war's potential and often essential antagonism, destruction, loss of life and protective, uh, loss, loss of protective order. And I think that's what just war theory can uh, contribute to building peace. Thanks.
2: Thanks very much. We conclude the presentations with Ross Beaton, who will be talking about proportionality in relation to use post fellow. Okay, so is this on? It should be now. Yeah. Okay, so
4: um, I've been asked to be brief, so uh, I think I agree with Therese. Um,
2: no. This one's on. I think. There we go. There
4: we are. Okay. So uh, what I'm going to talk about is the interface between just war theory and uh, just peace thinking. Um, we've already heard from Tony Cody um, and other speakers throughout the day of the uh, difficulties in determining what uh, what a just peace actually means. Um, So I'm going to address a slightly different question, which is, even say that uh, perhaps after several thousand years of um, Russian intellectualism, we were able to arrive at a definition of a just peace that we could all agree on um, across the world. Does that resolve the question of what the aim of a just war should be? I'm going to argue that it doesn't. our intuitions in this area may pull us in very dif- uh, different directions, so start with a uh, very simple case. Take a great big playground bully beating up a small boy, no states involved. It seems fairly self-evident that a just peace would require establishing some sort of equal relationship between the, the two boys, perhaps some sort of punishment for the, the bully's behaviour, if I can condense a lot of what's been said today into, <laughs> in, into the playground. Um, However, the way that we actually tend to deal with uh, those sorts of situations is we we pull the pair apart. And the reason we do that is that we believe the value of ending the fight prevails over the value of achieving justice in the peace between them. There are very few headmasters who would countenance giving the smaller boy a knuckle duster and allowing him to vindicate his rights in a condition of international anarchy. And so that intuition, that unjust peace may be bad, but that violent conflict in and of itself is often even worse, Now I think that ran through through Therese's presentation uh, just before, uh, may help us think through the proper relationship between just war and just peace. And to fit this into some of the more academic literature, I think it also helps us to point to uh, lacuna in some of the emerging use post bellum literature. There's, there's not very much. are probably a dozen um, good articles in use, in use post bellum um, at the moment. And the most the best known uh, among an audience here would probably be Brian Oren's chapter in War and International Justice, I'm guessing, or Gary Bass's article in Philosophy and Public Affairs of three or four years ago. Um, and all of this literature has the weakness of failing to adequately consider to what extent just post objectives that um, the authors advocate for ought to be fought for. Now, ba- uh, Bass takes up this point, and he, he, he says that uh, there's a problem as to knowing when a war fought justly, and seeking to achieve a just peace goes too far and itself becomes aggression. He sort of leaves it there, and that, that, that's the point that I want to I I pick the argument up. Now, the principle of proportionality is perhaps hardly less controversial than, than the definition of a just peace, but uh, I think that it can provide us with a good starting point. And specifically, uh, I'll just begin with Jeff McMahon's way of laying out the principle which he, which he uses in the first chapter of Killing in War, his book from last year. It distinguishes between four types of killing. One, intentional killing of combatants; Two, unintended but but foreseeable killing of combatants; Three, intentional killing of civilians. Four, unintended but foreseeable killing of civilians. I think this is useful um, to to start from McMahon's work because it doesn't depend... It's not theological. It doesn't depend on definitions of states of war. It doesn't depend on law. It's starting from the the very simple starting point that killing people, intentional killing is wrong, and building up a theory from there. And so I think it's quite useful when when we're trying to build up our theories to to start from someone whose starting points are as clear as as can be in that sense. So I don't want to enter into a detailed discussion of McMahon's account, um, and hopefully there'll be time for questions and people can ask that if they want. Um, But it's useful, firstly, in taking proportionality into a realm that we've usually thought of as dominated by the principle of discrimination, namely the intended killing combatants. The fact that someone's armed and posing a threat doesn't suffice to justify killing him. There there also has to be some benefit to be gained that's worth the taking of a human life. That's important, it's often lost in just war thinking. Such benefit can't simply be a military advantage either. It might seem obvious, although it's not always true in strategic terms, that killing an awful lot of enemy combatants will always bring a military advantage. The benefit gained, which makes killing the combatants justified, has to rather be an objective good in and of itself um, for the the killing to be justified. Perhaps less controversially, foreseeable but unintended killing of civilians must be in pursuit of some objective good that is somehow worth their deaths. I say less controversially because I I do want to object to most double effect-based accounts of warfare waging a just war, is simply not good enough to reason in the abstract about who is and who isn't a legitimate target, and then proceed by trying our best to target only combatants and putting the rest of the damage down to some sort of double effect. Killing civilians, that is, while trying really very hard to do the right thing and to establish a just peace. And we can start to think about what all this might mean by thinking a little about the conflict in Afghanistan. And we can even localise that to the level of an operation called Operation Mushtarek, which is currently underway in Helmand province in southern Afghanistan, is designed to drive the Taliban out of a district called Marja, which is substantially smaller than Oxfordshire. And this was an operation which is a particularly high-profile modern counterinsurgency operation. Launched, as I say, a few months ago, designed to clear the Taliban out of Marja, to hold the district with substantial troop numbers, to build Afghan government capacity to deliver good governance to the population over the long term, to establish something that might look very much like what we've been talking about as a just peace in Marja. We're not looking at old-school gung-ho military operations here. Troops were and remain under strict instructions to minimise airstrikes, to minimise civilian casualties. We're looking in terms of uh, a military operation on the ground, uh, consistent with the most modern principles of just war. Thinking as something that's probably as good as it gets. So it's a hard case. And for the purpose of this, this talk, I'll allow me to discount as well whether, whether or not defeating the Taliban in Marja is actually essential to victory over the Taliban in Afghanistan as a whole, and to assume that establishing a just peace for uh, the people of Marja would, in fact, require the eradication of the local Taliban. Do there still remain any questions as to whether launching Musharak, in resta- restrained and discriminate pursuit of a just peace was justified? And my argument, I think you'll see, is that the most serious questions still remain unanswered at this point. Even given that just peace, which is an objective good, would be achieved, and we may even assume that given NATO's immense conventional military superiority, achievement of the desired goal is certain, we still have to ask whether this is worth the cost in both civilian and Taliban lives. We still have to ask not only whether better governance is an objective good, whether a just peace is an objective good but how good it is and find a way of setting this against civilian fatalities and Taliban fatalities we may well discount competent fatalities but discounting the lives of local teenagers we surely shouldn't discount them to nothing and so balancing the objective good represented by just peace against the proportionality of adopting it as the political objective of a war. I'd argue it's a problem that's familiar to every school headmaster, except that it's blown up into a national scale in this case, and it's fought out in the nether re- uh, reaches the Hindu Kush. How should we begin to lay this moral calculus out? Well, I think that's, that's probably the subject of another conference, but I, I think we can start to see, hopefully, the need to think about just war and just peace together, uh, uh, and not simply to assume that if we can work out what a just peace is, that it naturally follows that it should be the objective of a just war.
2: Thanks very much. I started as a skeptic about the coherence of these four papers, but actually, I think that they've more closely to the um, topic of defining peace and debating peace in relation to war, or maybe war in relation to peace than I had at first imagined. We do have a few minutes only, more closely to the um, topic of defining peace and debating peace in relation to war, maybe war in relation to peace than I had at first imagined. We do have a few minutes only, I should think. Liz, you'll tell me what the score is. Uh, Yes, Um, you have seven minutes. Seven minutes, minutes, okay. Um, And that's maybe, well, so I'll take any questions, comments from the floor or from the panelists. On one of those presentations, just to throw in a little bit of. We'll start with you. I don't know if I have a mic. You shouldn't have to do that as a. You, yeah, I think we're good enough friends. <laughs>
5: um, so I have a two part question. The first part is very brief to everyone on the panel, which is just to say Is it a shared assumption amongst all of you that, that, that the definition of peace is one should, that, that is inevitably to be So that peace is not merely a descriptive analytical ca- uh, 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 word that we use? To, to define a certain situation but incorporate within it certain or, or should incorporate within it certain values that, we, that define each of something we want to aim towards that's just a general question, it might be a yes or no an answer my more, um, my, my, my proper question um, I'm very cheated in the first one uh, this is Tony I think although, uh, other people might have um, so Tony I'm uh, talking a lot at the end of your conversation um, about um, also as as, as, um, uh, as, as Theresa mentioned about the distinction between force and violence, Um, and it seems to me that one of the things we're trying to attempt, or what you're trying to attempt to do here, is to avoid a definition of peace merely collapsing back into a definition of justice, Um, in the sense, as I understand it, that that if we we had a a peaceful circumstance in which a state is always deploying force, how do we distinguish between that force and violence without merely Resorting to the idea, of, well, force exerted by a state is, is, is just, and if it's unjust, it's violence. Does, does that make sense? Um, and I'm wondering whether the, the, the one of the distinctions might be that, that when we think of cases where state, states enact violence against their own citizens, so things like uh, genocide or oppression or gulags out or something like that, it's in some way violence which can't be avoided. So whereas a, a, a law, even an unjust law I can adhere to, I can follow, and therefore avoid any violence by the state against me. Something like being sent to gulags, or or, or being, you know, killed by the government, or being killed in the genocide is, is broadly indiscriminate. I wonder if <coughs> that distinction, nebulous as it is in the way I've expressed it, might in some way um, be useful. But my, my, my general question is just: Is, is that distinction between force and, and violence something that is is important in trying to avoid this collapse back into um, m- merely a question of whether the uh, the situations
2: just or are so maybe just can you answer that and then we can ask others to comment on the first question
0: yeah sure um, well let me do uh, a little uh, on the first question uh, which others have things to say too uh, I think it, it's um, the definition of peace is inevitably going to have some more development that's why I was talking about a medium conception thin conception potentially to have none Um, I don't want to have myself to have too thick a normative uh, element, uh, largely because I'm generally worried about um, uh, definitions of uh, important political terms uh, that build too many answers into them, I mean, really, or that that become so uh, loaded with so many moral components that they lose practical grip. And I think that tends to happen with quite a lot of concepts. Uh, I'm even very nervous about the island's uh, structural violence of being too broad and wide a notion of violence uh, to be in the end politically useful. Um, I don't want to legislate on these things, but this is my sort of preference generally for those things. Um, on, uh, and so the other part of we've said about peace and justice. Uh, yes, exactly. I don't want to. I, I mean, I think they're, they're different concepts, so they've got important relations between them. But I think there is a tendency in uh, peace movements, often, uh, to collapse or bring them so close together that you know you really couldn't ever get a proper peace because you wouldn't get enough justice going around. I don't think. I think that's a worry. Uh, but again, I don't want to be so thin that you finish up. That's why I try to build into the stability of the centre, uh, the dispositions that I borrowed from Holmes. Uh, on the uh, the second question, directed to me. I, I'm not trying sure to follow all of it, but. I want not distinguish between force and violence because, uh, as Therese was saying, um, I think the way that uh, the term force is used for shooting people and so on, when it's done by the state, uh, obscures the fact that this is an instance of using uh, powerful means uh, to injure them, which is it's not exactly my definition of violence, but it's close to The use of force in order to inflict injury. On big or property, there's another bit to it. But uh, now, just talking about force, you know, you can use force uh, to rescue someone from uh, something they're trapped in, with their consent, you're pulling them out. You exert a lot of force for it, yeah. totally benign. Force is a wider notion than violence. Violence involves essentially the inflicting harm. The I don't say that violence is always unjustified. I think it can sometimes be justified. Um, So I think it's sometimes justified when the state uses it, sometimes when non-state people use it. But there's a presumption against it for a whole lot of reasons. Um, So a case has to be made each time. On your point about indiscriminate uses, I wouldn't want to uh, resort to the uh, adjective indiscriminate to uh, differentiate between violence and force, because I think quite a lot of violence can be very discriminant by the state as well as by other groups. Discriminate in the sense that it's got a specific target in mind, and it goes about doing it very efficiently. Indiscriminate conveys the impression that it's all over the place, and not all violence is indiscriminate. So I, I resist that part of the thing.
3: Uh, I, I don't want to add anything to the first question, but maybe uh, in conjunction to what you said. It's interesting that in, in German the word for the use of force, violence and power are all the same, It's all divided. Um, so of course, then we have a different uh, kind of range. How uh, political enemies are labelled, which is usually which is usually uh, So then sometimes we even have uh, whatever political parties who are called extremists because the extremism versus normality becomes the distinguishing. That become the distinction terms, but I do think it's it's good uh, that that these words stick together so much, and that the knowledge there's harm involved always swings with it with use. Okay, so I'm uh, in that that it always
2: had
4: to be over the sun. Very thin uh, normative uh, load on a concept like peace, but I would talk about just peace. I need to use the adjective if I thought that the concept of peace itself should always, or was always, strictly normatively related. In terms of violence, I'm trying to to argue that there there are two. um, two opposite um, angles to think about judgment uh, or justice. So you could define a justice uh as being some variation on a, a, a situation in which the essential rights and interests of individuals were respected and protected. Thank if you're looking for it simple definition you something like that. In terms of the use of violence, I think it's very good that when you see the use of violence it's very clear it's the individual acts of violence against the individual people. Um, you have to ask you have to justify the individual acts of violence one by one, if you like. Uh, but that doesn't feed, um, it doesn't feed into the overall consideration of whether, whether you have a, uh, a just peace or an unjust peace, or really, whether you accept individual types of violence or justify justified or not,
1: I think that's a more helpful um, way of about the problem. I think 30 seconds left, so I'll be very brief. <laughs> the, the question of uh, uh, truth um, a peace of normative, uh, I would say that uh, truth and justice and, and therefore peace, are, there, there's a stream of thought from I would say the Bible and Greek philosophy all the way to Kant that would argue that it's largely universal uh, for people who are not engaged in a specific situation. There seems to be an incredible agreement um, among human beings um, in, in many cases. Um, however, and I think here's the catch, because it doesn't conform to our experience on this planet. So why in the, the um, SCRs in, in Oxford and in philosophy you have these agreements on, on many concepts, but not in the real world? The, the, these concepts are highly relative and therefore not normative in, in context, in individual context there's no time in my paper to go into it but I think what makes these concepts of peace and justice r- relative uh, rather than normative is that they're dependent upon individual and uh, and often national narrative or myth or self-understanding um, and um, level of conscience and consciousness what Hegel would call it abyssin, and how um, we understand, understand our world and I think that's the, um, the, the variable and uh, it's, it's how um, people interpret these concepts um, in specific co- uh, contexts and lay in with their, especially with their national narratives uh, I think that makes these uh, concepts highly contentious.
2: <laughs> I don't know whether there are any other questions. I think we're actually at time, although I think the next meeting is in the plenary of receiving. Yeah. Oh, well, we can just keep going. So we may moment. be able to keep yeah. going. I don't know if anybody else would like to ask a question or a comment or if there's anything that emerges from the presentations that the panelists might like to say, a conversation among yourselves. Well,
0: I, just on Robert's last point, I, I think I um, think uh, I think that um, uh, nothing I said was intended to suggest that that these concepts are absolutely cut and dry in ordinary discourse. I don't don't think that's the case. I mean, I think particularly politically laden concepts uh, have all manner of stuff building them in the the discourse, you know, coming out of political situations and so on. Uh, But I think the interesting thing to try and do is to examine those and see see if you can come up with something that's, um, Catches important features of what's going on in the discourse uh, but is very useful for some ethical, political project that can be justified itself. Uh, so when you say the, the various narratives and so on, of course, uh, but you wouldn't want to say, would you? Is the question. You wouldn't want to say uh, that you couldn't work on those and recommend one as being better for certain purposes and so on that, you know, are important purposes. So you
1: want to know yeah. I think this is where uh, we, we need a multifaceted approach, and this is what Liz is trying to organize here in Oxford, that these issues, um, I agree with what you're saying, these, these issues are, it's one thing to discuss them in this uh, setting, and none of us have issues of land or water, or uh, hopefully none of our you know, children. Water, water, water. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but um, and I think that's the, the advantage of trying to get an academic a study center and, and together, or at like least a meeting of minds and see what we can put together for dispassionate for solutions uh, for these issues. But. Um, when uh, uh, again, the, the, um, it I just talked the John Dalton about the efficacy of trying to have dialogue in different narratives, and he just he said a word that begins with S H. Um, yeah, because experience Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> yes, um, but precisely because people are so engaged in their narratives, and every every bit of understanding that they have to make is actually a conception to the so-called the other side, it's very difficult. There's a, a, a scholar here, Susan Greenfield, who um, did a presentation at the 21st Century Institute, James Martin, who spoke about um, the two different parts of the brain, and this is why I think it's so important, speaking about how we have a kind of fuse in this frontal lobe, which when we feel that we're uh, confronted or there, there is threat, it just blows a fuse, and we, we stop engaging in rational discourse, and we, we just uh, put up a wall. Um, so, I, I mean, I'd love to, to work, and I hope we can do so in Oxford, to work on, on these issues and try to find solutions.
2: Okay, I think that uh, a good note on which to end this uh, session, so thank you all.